I feel like I have a powerful word tonight. I want to make sure that you really remember this because this is the type of word, if you could just really look this way and listen and give me your best ear tonight and, and really focus on what's being preached, focus on the content of God's word tonight. And then, you know, take the notes home if you want or they'll be on sermon.net and use it as a Bible study through this week. But this type of sermon can be something that it's just the content in the sermon. But if it's really understood, it can be something that's very life-changing for people. And so, Lord, I thank you tonight as we get into the word of the Lord and we're all in agreement. I thank you for an open heaven and your glory here. I thank you, Holy Spirit, for coming to anoint and empower this time. And as even now, Holy Spirit is moving upon every person that's going to be listening. Lord, I thank you as the Holy Spirit moves upon us for helping us to give you our best ear, our full attention, our focus and we're not going to be distracted, minds not wandering. There's going to be the, the grace by the Holy Spirit to kind of lock in and focus on what the word of the Lord is saying to us. And, and the, the grace to be able to see, hear, and understand. Maybe things we couldn't before, but the Holy Spirit helps us. And he helps us in our weakness. He, he teaches us the word. And, and Lord, I thank you for that upon every person that's going to be listening. But also, even now, as you speak through me, your words of life, your truth. It'll go out as living seeds sown into good soil, watered by the Holy Spirit, take root, grow, and produce a hundredfold harvest of eternal fruit that remains till Jesus comes. And the winds of your spirit will blow this out among the nations. It'll get everywhere it's supposed to accomplish everything it's supposed to. Anything that would try to hinder the word, the birds of the air try to steal the seed. That's the demonic. We take authority as a church and we bind up anything of the enemy that's trying to hinder this word. You will go now in Jesus' name. Back off. And, Lord, I thank you for this getting where it's supposed to. And the Bible says your word will not return void, but it will go forth and accomplish that which you sent it forth to do. So we stand on that in faith and agreement as a church. We thank you, Lord, for everything being accomplished and through this time that your will to be done. We believe it and we expect it now in Jesus' name. All right, so I'm going to be talking about the God of justice and this has got a couple things that I feel like are very important in this season that we're in as a church. And the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, is coming up in a few days. And these feast times have great significance. Without getting into too much of it, there's, it's a prophetic calendar. And all that I don't have time to get into. But I do believe these dates are important to God. And they do have some type of significance. And so I encourage people... During this time, we're from the Feast of Trumpets to Yom Kippur. It's called the, uh, day, the Days of Awe. I just encourage you to seek the Lord, to go deeper in Him during this time, okay? Now, this sermon goes along with uh, the, the concept of Yom Kippur that God is a God of justice, okay? And He's a God that is faithful to fulfill His promises. And Jubilee was declared on Yom Kippur by the blasting of the ram's horn. And Jubilee was a very interesting principle because anything that, was, that you shouldn't have that was brought into your life will be removed. But things that was taken from you that belongs to you will be restored. And so look at it like this. Anything the enemy has put in your life is going to be removed. But things the enemy has stolen will be restored back. It's a very powerful principle of Jubilee. And God is a God of justice. 
And so he wants to restore the years the locusts have eaten. And sometimes that can take some time, but God is a God of restoration. And so keep that in mind as we go through this, this whole sermon. But there's about three or four things that I want to bring out in this, I think, that will really impact you. But let's start in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 8. And I want people just to listen. If you want to follow along, that's fine. But really listen to this because you can read over these scriptures throughout this week and study them for yourself. But Hebrews 4, starting with verse 8, is talking about how Joshua took the children of Israel into the promised land. And so it's giving this example. It says, for if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. Then there remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works just as God did from his. What that's saying is this, that Jesus completed the work on the cross. And when people really understand what Jesus did for them, they're no longer trying to strive and work for things they enter into a rest of the completed work of Christ, okay? That's what that's saying. In the verse 11, let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. Talking about those that didn't enter the promised land. For the word of God is alive and active, amen? Sharper than any double-edged sword, it penetrates even to the dividing of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. I laughed one time. This guy really believed, well, if I don't bring it up, God won't know about it. <laughs> How many knows God knows about everything? So everything is, everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So nothing is hidden from God. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. A couple things there. Picture in this sermon, I know God is a father, but picture him as a judge. And Jesus at his right hand ever living to make intercession, picture him as an attorney that's trying to defend you. I want you to picture that for a moment because even though God is a loving father and Jesus is, is our great high priest interceding, there's also an aspect here of God being a righteous judge and Jesus being our advocate. That's just scriptural, I'm telling you. I don't have time to go off on this big rabbit trail on it, but picture that for a moment, that God wants to give us justice over our adversary. And Jesus is pleading our case. And so therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended to heaven, and also let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. And let me just bring out this point. There is a scriptural principle in multiple places of believing in your heart and then confessing, professing with your mouth the word of God unto salvation. Salvation being more than just the forgiveness of sins. We enter the rest that Jesus paid for us to be saved and healed and delivered and protected and preserved and prospered, made to do well, made whole. All of that is in that Greek word sozo and also the Hebrew word yasha. That is Christ's salvation. It's what he paid for. There's something about believing in your heart. One of the most powerful sermon series I probably ever did since I've preached the word is that God of blood covenant. I felt the weight of it when I preached it. I felt a holy fear of God. It, it was a very significant word because it was such a deep, significant content in it. 
understanding the nature of God as one who cuts covenant and is faithful to covenant. And so I encourage people, maybe you haven't heard that, to go back and find that, listen to it. But without belaboring this point, we have to believe that what God said in his word is true in our hearts, not doubting, and then speak it out. And the principle is that you believe in your heart and speak to mountains and they will move. That happens because we know the word of God, it's hidden in our hearts, and we have a stubborn faith and speaking the word of God over circumstances. And the Bible even goes on to say that Abraham called things not as though they were. There's something about speaking faith into things. So Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. If you want to see mountains move, you have to believe and let your mouth be in agreement with what God is saying. What God has told you, the promises of God, prophecies in your life being fulfilled, entering your destiny, you have to believe it in your heart and speak the word of God over it. And then it goes on to say in verse 15, but we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who was tempted in every way just as we are. Yet he did not sin. So Jesus is sympathetic to what we're going through because he faced it himself. And so then it says in verse 16, I want you to picture God as a judge, okay? A merciful judge to his blood covenant people. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. And I think about as we go into this scripture, Luke 18, We can come with confidence before the throne of grace and how important it is for every one of us. I learned this a long time ago. I'm not perfect and I quit expecting myself to be perfect a long time ago. It's a waste of time. You're not perfect and you won't be until you see Jesus. So just get over that. And you've got to understand that as long as you have a sincere heart with all your heart, you love God and you're trying to live for him. Look, people are going to fail. They're going to make mistakes, but you can't focus on that. You've got to approach God's throne like this. It doesn't matter, Lord, I've confessed and repented of my sins, but I can come with confidence because of what Jesus did. By his blood, I am sanctified. I am made holy. I am the righteousness of God in Christ, and the blood covenant promises are mine regardless. That's powerful. You have to have that kind of faith. When you approach God's throne, you come with confidence about what Christ did. Don't focus on your flaws. You focus on Christ's perfection. You focus on the blood and what the blood says that you are. And because you have faith in God that what he has done, you enter rest. You're no longer striving. Because it's not about your legalism, it's not about your works, it's not about anything but what Jesus already did at the cross. And you can come with confidence saying, Lord, I'm not perfect, but I have confessed my sins and you are faithful and just to forgive me my sin and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. Therefore, it's, it's erased, it's gone. I come now as a son of blood covenant with these needs that you promised in the word and the Bible says that you are faithful to do it. Not based on my righteousness, but I am made the righteousness of God in Christ. We have to have that kind of confidence. It's humble, and it's a, it's a focus on Jesus and what he did. Amen? Is that making sense tonight? 
Because people get their eyes on their, their imperfections and they, they beat themselves down so much they cannot come with confidence before God. And it hinders their prayer life. We have to have confidence. And Luke 18 says this, Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. How many knows we have to keep asking, we have to keep seeking, we have to keep knocking, and you cannot give up. Listen, Abraham had to wait years before he saw Isaac born. God may have spoken to you a promise, and you've gone through a wilderness like a seed has to go into the ground and die. Then it produces fruit. You've gone through a wilderness time. Just like Israel, God said, I'm taking you to a land of milk and honey. And you walk right into a desert where there's no milk, no honey, and no water even to speak of. I mean, it's like the exact opposite. But once you get on the other side of that, there's the land of milk and honey. See, you go through these processes that God puts you through. But do not give up praying and believing for the things that God said he would do. Because many times people give up. But if they will be consistent and persistent, God will do it. So Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. And he said, in a certain town, there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. And there was a widow. In those times, a widow was a desperate person, poor, destitute. And she came in that town She kept coming before this judge, pleading with him, Grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused. But finally he said to himself, Even though I don't fear God and I don't care about people, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me or really that scriptures wear me out. So this guy didn't care about God. He didn't care about justice. He didn't care about people. But because of her persistence, he said, I'm going to give this woman what she's asking so she'll leave me alone. She's wearing me out, man. But then Jesus said this. Listen to what the unjust judge says. And what, listen to this. I love this scripture in verse 7. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, no. He will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, he will find faith on the earth. Faith is tested with time. It is through faith and patience that we possess the promises of God. So what Jesus is saying here is this. Look, just like this unjust judge, the widow kept coming kept coming, kept coming. She finally wore him down. She got what she was asking. And Jesus is saying, look, if an unjust judge would do that, how much more so will your loving father do that for you? He's faithful, but you can't give up. And I think that many times in scripture, you can see a lot of things like this as a pattern. I think about in scripture, it says in Psalms, there's an appointed time to favor Zion and to rebuild the rubble. A lot of times there's a timing about certain things that God's promised you. And if it comes prematurely, it can be a horrible problem. I think about like if you take, you know, the whole concept of like a chicken laying eggs and then the, the chick is being developed in the egg. If that somehow that egg is cracked open before the chick is fully developed, it's going to die. 
It's premature. It's going to kill that little chick. In the same way, God, many, many times we see ourselves as being ready because of human impatience. And we think, well, we should have it now. It should already be happening. Why is it not happening? What's the problem? What's wrong with me? What's wrong with the, the situation? I mean, what's going on? Why am I not seeing this? And God's in there going, you're in a process of being developed for it. In Daniel 7.20, and this is another aspect I want to bring in. I, he said this, I also wanted to know about the ten horns on its head and about the other horn that, was, that came up before which... The three of them fell, and this is the ten end-time principalities and nations that will serve the Antichrist. The little horn is the Antichrist. It says that horn looked more opposing than the others and had eyes and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I watched, this horn was waging war against the holy people and defeating them. This is talking about the end times as far as the tribulation. It's talking primarily about the nation of Israel. But then it goes on to say a principle I want to show you. In verse 22, until the ancient of days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the holy people of the Most High. And the time came when they possessed the kingdom. If you read before that, which I don't have time to do, it says that the books were brought before the ancient of days and they were opened. And then the ancient of days took his seat and pronounced judgment. Look. When God said that something will happen, it's going to happen. The problem is that sometimes God has spoken that he will do something and people start out in faith, but then at some point in their own personal life, they have promises, but they don't have the patience and the faith to see it all the way through to the end. Look, if God has spoken it, it's like this. It's kind of like being documented in books. Time passes, and then somebody brings a book. How many have read something in a journal that maybe you wrote years ago and you kind of forgot about it? And then you read that, and they said, wait a second, I remember that, and God showed me that back three or four years ago, and all of a sudden now you're kind of seeing those things happening. In the same way, God has books, and when it's time, these things will be brought before him, and he's going to pronounce judgment in your favor that it's time for these things to come to pass. And so let me give you a situation here in the scripture. Years ago, God showed me this passage. I mean, years ago. And I felt the Lord tell me back then that there would come a time, just like this story, that it would be the fullness of time and that God would send his angel and would make things happen. And that's all through scripture. And I'm going to show you one and I'll give you a few examples beyond that at the end of it. But I'm going to show you something. So Hezekiah was a righteous king, a descendant of David. And so as a righteous king, he was going through the land and he was dealing with sin in the land. He was removing the high places of worship where people burned incense. He was destroying altars to Baal. He was tearing down graven images. Um, I mean, he was cleaning house throughout the nation of Israel. And he was basically leading a great reform and a revival of sorts. And he dealt with things that had been there for a long time. One of the things he dealt with was this. The children of Israel in the wilderness, God had told them to make a bronze serpent and put it up on a pole, and it probably it was a cross, and they put it on there. And when they looked to it, they were healed from something, a plague that God had given them. Anyway, in the days of Hezekiah, they were still burning incense to that stupid snake. 
And so Hezekiah went and got it and destroyed it and got rid of it because he was removing idolatry out of the land. So I want you to see that Hezekiah was a righteous king and he was going to great lengths to make everything right before God. And in the days of Hezekiah lived the prophet Isaiah. How many knows that you love having a prophet like Isaiah alive in your generation? And he was a great blessing to Hezekiah. So I'm going to read you a story where Hezekiah really needed God's help and God gave him a great victory. But in 2 Kings 18 and 19, so over this coming week, I encourage people in your own Bible study to read 2 Kings 18 and 19 and believe God for miraculous events. So let me go on and read this story. The king of Assyria sent his supreme commander, the chief officer. So in Hebrew, that's um, that word there is in the uh, King James. They use that. It's, it's actually Rav Shecha, I believe is how it's pronounced. But... Some say Rav Shekah, but that's a, it was a chief officer, a chief prince. And just like in the days of Jezebel, Jezebel had a, a foul spirit, a strong spirit of witchcraft and control, an evil woman. But whenever she sent an emissary to um, Elijah, she didn't go herself, but she sent somebody to speak to Elijah on her behalf. In the same way, the king of Assyria sent his Rav Shekhah, he sent his chief officer to be like a voice for him. And his field commander with a large army. And from Lachish, the king Hezekiah at Jerusalem. Now they came up to Jerusalem. So you've got the king of Assyria sent his leadership to Jerusalem. And they stopped at the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road of um, Washerman's Field. And they called for the king. And Eliakim, son of Hakiah, the palace administrator, Shibna, secretary, Joah, Asaph, the recorder, these, these leaders went there and the field commander, and he said to them, this is a Hezekiah's leadership, and, he, and they were saying on behalf of the king of Assyria, now listen to this, this is what the great king, king of Assyria says, on what are you basing this confidence of yours? You say you have counsel and the might for war, but you speak only empty words. On whom are you depending that you rebel against me? Look, I know you are depending on Egypt, that splintered reed of a staff which pierces the hands of anyone that leans on it, such as Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who depend on him. But if you say to me, we are depending on the Lord our God, now he starts blaspheming God. Big mistake right here. Isn't he, speaking of God, the one whose high places and altars Hezekiah removed? This guy didn't even have a clue. Hezekiah was removing the false altars of Baal, etc. Saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you must worship before the altar in Jerusalem, which is what God said do. So this king is twisting it. And look at this. Come now, make a bargain with my master, king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses if you can put riders on them. So he's mocking them. How can you repulse one officer of the least of my master's officials, even though you are depending on Egypt for chariots and horsemen? Furthermore, which Israel wasn't supposed to do, mind you. Furthermore, have I come to attack and destroy this place without word from the Lord? Now look at this. This guy says the, the audacity of this. The Lord himself told me to march against this country and destroy it. <clears throat> then Eliakim, uh, son of Hilkiah, and Shebna, and Joah, 
the field commander, please speak to your servants in Aramaic since we understand it. Don't speak to us in Hebrew in the hearing of the people on the wall. But the commander replied, was it only to your master and you that my master sent me to say these things? And not the people sitting on the wall who, like you, um, will have to eat their own excrement and drink their own urine. So he's mocking them, saying, we're going to destroy you. Then the commander stood and called out in Hebrew, hear the word of the king. The king of Assyria. This is what the king says. Do not let Hezekiah deceive you. He cannot deliver you from my hand. Do not let Hezekiah persuade you to trust in the Lord. He cannot deliver you from my hand. The Lord is surely, um, Hezekiah would say this, persuade you to trust in the Lord and say the Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of a king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah. This is what the king of Assyria says. Make peace with me and come out to me. Then each of you will eat from his own vine, fig tree, and drink water from his own cistern until I come and uh, take you to the land like your own, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards and olive trees, etc. He says, choose life, not death. Then he goes on to say, do not listen to Hezekiah for he's misleading you. When he says, the Lord will deliver us, has the God of any nation ever delivered this, uh, his land from the hand of the king of Assyria? Where, the, where were the gods of Hamath and Arf, Arpad? And he goes through all these different lands he's conquered. And look at this, have they rescued Samaria? So God had allowed the northern tribes of Israel to fall at the hand of Assyria. Let me say something many probably already know. But number one, Assyria was so evil that God actually calls, one of the names that God gives the Antichrist is the Assyrian in the Bible. Think about that for a minute. Assyria was known, even in secular studies, for being brutal. They, they, when they went in to conquer a place, they deliberately tortured and dismembered people in a gruesome way very gruesome because they wanted to intimidate every other nation that this will happen to you if you rebel against me. They were very brutal people. That's why Jonah, the prophet, refused to go to Assyria to Nineveh because he knew how brutal and how evil they were. And Jonah basically said within himself, these people deserve God's judgment. I'm not going to go there and give the word of the Lord and let them see revival in their lives, you know. But God... Anyway, that's another story for another day. But I'm just showing you how evil Assyria was. And so Hezekiah and Jerusalem had a reason to be afraid. Because this brutal, and not only were they brutal, but they were very outnumbered. Whenever Assyria came, they had hundreds of thousands of trained men of war. And Jerusalem had very few. So they didn't stand a chance, not to mention Assyria would have cut off their water supply and could have just waited. That's what he was saying about them eating their own excrement. They would have cut off all food and water supply and just waited on them. So this guy comes and he's mocking God. He's telling them you can't depend on your God. You can't depend on Hezekiah. You can't depend on your prophets. He said, who of all the gods of these countries has been able to save his land from me? So then can the Lord deliver Jerusalem from my hand? But the people remained silent and said nothing because Hezekiah told them not to. So let me skip down to 2 Kings 19 verse 5. Then when King Hezekiah's officials came to Isaiah, 
Isaiah said to them, so now King Hezekiah is scared, and rightfully so. And so he sends his officials to go to the prophet Isaiah and tell Isaiah what's going on. Look, this guy destroyed Samaria. He took the ten northern tribes of Israel captive. He's destroyed every other nation. Now he's surrounding little Judah, little Jerusalem, and we don't stand a chance. And they go to Isaiah and say, what do we do? And Isaiah said to them, look at this. Tell your master, Hezekiah, this is what the Lord says. Do not be afraid of what you've heard. Those words with which the underlings of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me, blasphemed me. Listen, when he hears a certain report, I will make him return to his own country, and there I will have him cut down with the sword. Therefore, this is what the Lord says concerning the king of Assyria. He will not enter this city or shoot an arrow here. He will not come before it with shield or build a siege ramp against it. But the way which he came, he will return. He will not enter the city, declares the Lord. I, look at this, the Lord says, I will defend this city and I will save it. For my sake and for the sake of David, my servant. Hezekiah was a descendant of David. Think about that for a minute, how much God honors covenant. God had cut a covenant with David that he was still remembering and honoring in Hezekiah all those years later. God said, for my sake and for David, my servant's sake, I will remember David for you, Hezekiah. Now look at this. That night, think about this. You have this huge, massive army surrounding this little Jerusalem. They don't stand a chance. And the only thing that they have to depend on now is the word of the Lord through the prophet Isaiah. But look at this. That night, they went to bed that night, certain death was in front of them, and in one night, everything turned around completely. Watch this. It says in verse 35, that night the angel of the Lord, one angel, went out and put to death 185,000 in the Assyrian camp. When the people got up the next morning, there were all these dead bodies. Think about 185,000 people for a minute. Okay, it's a lot of people. It's hard to really wrap your mind around how far you would have to look to the side and, you know, in front of you to see dead bodies as far as the eye could see. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew. Now, there was an extra biblical writing. I think it was Josephus, if I remember. He said that what happened here was this, that the angel released a plague in the camp and 185,000 died by the plague and the king was scared that everybody else would die. And so he told them to get up and let's leave. And they left all their belongings afraid that it was contaminated with the plague. Think about that for a minute. So the king of Assyria left and took the rest of his army with him, just like Isaiah prophesied. He went back the way he came, and he took the rest of his army back with him. And then it says, one day while he was worshiping in the temple of his god, Nisroch, it says the sons of, of Adrimelech and Sherezer killed him with the sword, and they escaped to the land of Arab, and Ereshadon, his son, succeeded him as king. So just as Isaiah prophesied, this king was not able to shoot one arrow. He did not build a siege ramp. He went back the way he came, 
and he was cut down by the sword when he got there. Just exactly word for word what Isaiah said God would do. And let me tell you, it was time where God, where Hezekiah needed a miracle. If you read the whole story, Hezekiah took the threats of the king of Assyria, and it was written on paper. He spread it out at the temple, and he laid before the Lord and said, Lord, read these threats, and please save us, Lord. And he really humbled himself. And there was a deep groan. I can just imagine that him and the other people in the city were really praying in deep intercession. And there was a groan going up before God. And let me tell you something. God hears the cry of his people. God hears the groan. He hears the desperate prayers of God's people. Number two, God honors covenant. And that's why I'm trying to, I preach that series on the God of blood covenant and I've, I've talked so much about that, but it's so important that we all have a revelation of who we are and what we have in Christ because we are a people of blood covenant, that you know and understand that. And then number three, that God is just. And so there's three aspects here I want you to see. God hears the desperate cry of his people in intercession. Number two, he is a God that remembers covenant. And number three, he is just. And God turned an impossible situation around with one angel in one night. So is this something that only happened in the days of Hezekiah? No. We see this in multiple places in Scripture. And then down through church history, there's been stories, I mean, too many to name, where God's people cried out and God sent deliverance. Many times an angel showed up and everything turned around. Now look at this. What about in the days of Joshua? Joshua entered the promised land with the children of Israel, and then an angel appeared to Joshua at Bochim. And Joshua, remember, he said, Are you for us or against us? And the angel said, Neither. I'm for the Lord. I'm the commander of the Lord's army. And Joshua prostrated himself before him. And then they saw the great victory at Jericho. You know as well as I do that the angel of the Lord tore down those walls. Then number two, what about in the days of Peter? The Lord told Peter he would die a certain death and it would happen a certain way, but it wasn't Peter's time to die. And not only that, James had already been killed and the, and the, the people of God were scared they were going to lose all their leadership under Herod. And so they began, look at this, they began to cry out in desperate prayer. And they gathered together in a house and they were in deep intercession. Don't you think about the same situation, a desperate cry of God's people. God heard their, their cry. He heard their prayers. Number two, no doubt that God remembered that they are his blood covenant people. And then number three, that God is just. And God sent an angel to get Peter out of an impossible situation, which I've preached on many times, but for those that don't know the story, Peter was locked in a prison cell asleep with two guards, one on each side of him. He was chained to the guards. There was no way Peter could have got out of that situation in the natural. But the angel walked through there. The doors opened. The chains fell off. The angel just kind of kicks Peter, says, get up and come follow me. Peter ends up just walking right out of this impossible situation into the street, thinking the whole time he's dreaming this. The angel disappears, and here Peter is totally free. 
God brought Peter out of an impossible situation in one night because the angel of the Lord showed up. I think about Gideon. He's another person that saw an impossible victory. How many know the story of Gideon? With 300 men, he defeated hundreds of thousands. It was absolutely, without a doubt, an impossible situation. But what Mark Gideon's story was that before that victory, the angel appeared to Gideon and said, O man of great valor. And Gideon said, Who me? And it was the angel of the Lord that was with him, you see, to give him the victory. Now I think about David having to face the Philistines. Very difficult, possibly somewhat impossible situation. He needed a major victory. And God told David, wait until you hear the marching on the top of the trees and then go in because God went before him. What was the marching on the top of the trees? The angels being sent. All through scripture, we see that God sent an angel when it was time. When it was desperate. I think about when the fullness of time came. When John the Baptist had to be born. I mean it had to happen at that time. Because he had to be the one that preceded Christ. And then Jesus had to be born at a certain time. It was the fullness of time. It had been prophesied. But now the prophecy had been there for since Isaiah prophesied it. All through these generations but now it's the fullness of time. What happens at the fullness of time? God sent Gabriel, who appeared to Zechariah in the temple while he's burning the incense and praying. And he says to him, you are going to have a son. Name him John. And then he goes and appears to Mary and says, you're going to get pregnant by the power of the Holy Spirit coming upon you. And that angel was sent to make sure that that happened and it happened exactly when it was supposed to. It couldn't happen 200 years before. It had to happen at that time. And what I feel the Lord saying for us in River of Life, because I could be preaching on any number of things tonight, but I believe for River of Life, this is for us. This isn't for the greater body of Christ. I'm just saying for River of Life, in, in Psalms it says, the appointed time to favor Zion. It's the appointed time to rebuild the ruins. It was the time that was preordained. And I really feel like it's the appointed time for River of Life to leave an old season and move into a new. And a few years ago, God spoke to John Davis and spoke to me also, independent of each other, that it was it's time. And so much began to happen after that. I mean, once God said it's time, it's as though... All of a sudden, we started having these powerful conferences and people started coming in. And, and it, what happened was great preparation started taking place. Networks, relationships formed. A deep, significant impartation happened in our lives. God said it's time and then he started really preparing and speeding things up. And now I feel like the Lord's saying it's the fullness of time. It's the appointed time that now there's going to be a rebuilding, a new season entered into. Get ready. Now, I think about how many have ever seen that movie Facing the Giants, you know, that the Kendrick Brothers put out. It's a good movie. I, I recommend if you haven't seen it that you watch it. But in that movie, I remember that the guy got into a desperate place. And in that desperate place, there was a man that was a prayer warrior that told him, prepare for rain. You remember that? 
And so many times people, you got to stay in prayer. You got to be close to the Lord. You got to hear his voice. You got to know when the winds change and it's time to step out, you see. And when God's beginning to do something, you have to prepare for the rain. And I've been getting everything ready. There's a few more things that need to get ready. But you start really preparing everything to enter that season because you're preparing for rain. And when it comes, we're going to be ready. But I've been warning people as much as I can. Hopefully, the warning will be heard and the warning will be remembered. And nobody will be a casualty of war. But the warning of the Lord is this. There's two groups of people that you're going to have to face. And you're going to have to overcome them yourself. Because we haven't gone this way before with this group. And I'm just telling you, there's two different groups of people. One of them are the type that are malicious gossips and they're divisive. You're going to have to rebuke them and not let them affect you. The other kind is religious Pharisees. These are critics of the move of God. They don't like the freedom of the Holy Ghost. I'm just telling you. Those two groups of people are in front of us, and God will go before us, but you cannot tolerate them. If you let them, they will knock you off course, and they can get you out of the move of God and really hinder you. But I'm just telling you, I've been made up my mind. I'm going after God, and I'm not gonna. I'm gonna put. I'm not gonna put up with it, and I'm gonna go through any resistance into what God has. So divisive and religious people are gonna have to be contended with and dealt with. And let me give you a few more things before I close. Isaiah 61: The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. So he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, the day of the vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of the spirit of heaviness, Heaviness can be translated infirmity in the Hebrew. So they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. I'm telling you, River of Life, that this season of preparation has been a season where God has been anointing us like never before for the day in front of us. And that anointing is going to come forth. And that anointing will bring deliverance to the captives. It will bring healing to the sick. And that anointing will break through. In fact, this is what I feel more than anything, is that the enemy is trying to hinder praise like a spirit of heaviness. And that's been going on for some time. And I'm telling you that I can sense it. And there was a time when praise in River of Life was more than what it is right now, unfortunately. And it's a demonic thing. It's a spiritual thing. And this is why, because Isaiah 30, 31 through 32, when God strikes with the rod, in every blow of the rod of punishment, which the Lord will lay on the enemy, will be with the music of tambourines and lyres, and in battles brandishing weapons, he will fight for them. The rod of God's destruction against the enemy is connected with praise. 
Did everybody catch this? Because I really feel like it's a religious thing in our region. There's a religious spirit. There's a religious witchcraft. It's an oppressive thing. It, it releases a spirit of heaviness. And people that aren't very discerning don't discern it. But listen, that's why it suppresses worship. The enemy knows the power of praise. Think about this. It says in the scripture, oil of joy instead of mourning and the mantle of praise instead of the spirit of heaviness. The way that you break off heaviness and move into things like that is through praise. And God's people breaking free from that heaviness off them. Listen, I've been made up my mind to be a praiser. Whether people are or not, that's their problem. But I'm going to give you this. I'm going to read over it. There are seven Hebrew words for praise. And under one of them, there's a few other words that are connected. But here's the seven Hebrew words for praise. The word yada, which means to extend the hand in worship, lifting your hands. Then there's shabach, which means to address in a loud tone. Listen, praise is supposed to be loud. And it means to command, to triumph, to glory, to shouts. And then there's zamar. That word means to touch as in instrumental worship. The word barach means to kneel and to bless in adoration. The word tauda means to giving thanksgiving unto God with extended hands. But halal is the most common word, and that's where we get the word um, hallelujah from. And it means praise, but listen to word, the word halal in Hebrew to shine, to boast, to rave, to celebrate, to be joyful, to give light, to be given in marriage, and to be clamorously foolish. It's connected to the words ruah and gil, which means to shout, leap, and celebrate, and spin about. There is a freedom in that. That's what I'm saying. Listen, River of Life, I say this in love. You want revival? You better learn to defeat a religious spirit right now. You don't understand that these religious people, what they're like. They hate freedom and praise. They're going to be against your freedom and praise in the future. You better learn to be free and praise when it's easy now. Before those type of people start coming and they're like this, glaring at you. The whole time you're trying to praise. The most annoying thing in the world is when you're up here trying to praise God and somebody's just sitting there looking at you. We deal with that. That's a religious spirit. Don't let it stop your praise now. Because in the days to come, I'm telling you that those religious people are coming. And you better not let them suppress you then. Learn to enter in while it's easy. Praise should be free now. There's something that's been like waging war against the freedom here. And then there's other words for worship in the Hebrew. Worship is different. Worship has to do with, okay, let me say this. Derek Prince always taught that praise and worship is an add to the heart, but also that there's body postures and things connected to praise and worship. And there is. The standing, the clapping, the lifting of the hands, there's something about your body postures that's an expression unto God physically. But also in the worship, it says this. The word shecha means to prostrate oneself, pay homage, bow down. And the word atzab means to carve, fabricate, fashion. Did you know that worship can be in the arts? Painting, sculpting, things like that. And then the word segid, which means to worship. But it's a heart issue. 
And, and people that are truly born of God, that are really truly His, and they're not tares among the... They're really God's people. There's something in you to worship Him. How many have felt that? So when you're really the Lord's, there's something in you, the Spirit of God in you, that wants to worship Him and to express yourself. And so I'm just telling you that the lifting hands, the jumping, the spinning, the praise, this is all scriptural worship. In the places you go many times, one of the greatest battlegrounds in the body of Christ, I'm telling you this is a major battleground, is to suppress any type of praise and worship. What demonic spirits want is for people just to sit there and not worship God. Because the enemy knows that he can suppress worship, he can hinder the move of God in that church. And so be aware of it and don't let the devil hinder your praise. Like never before, River of Life, break out of any type of heaviness, anything that's been trying to hold you back, break that off and press into him. And not to mention the younger generation that's coming need an example. They need to see praisers and worshipers in the older generation. Do you hear what I'm saying? The younger generation need that example. And I love my wife has always been a worshiper. And I think about little Emberly and Kaya that they watch their Mimi worship God. And they're, they're little bitty kids, you know, four, two, whatever, little bitty kids. And they're watching their Mimi worship God like that. I'm going to tell you something. They're seeing a godly example, and that's why they worship. And you watch as they get older, they're going to be worshipers. And not to mention, Stephen and Brianna, worshipers, hearts of worship. So that's what I feel more than anything, River of Life. God is a God of justice. He is a God of covenant. And he is a God that hears the prayers of his people. But there's something in the way of a religious spirit that is trying to suppress things. And the way that you overcome and break free from that is in praise. That is the key to victory. The Bible says to enter with thanksgiving and courts with praise, to enter with thanksgiving and praise. When you come through the blood of Jesus and you begin to praise God and worship, you watch, it'll open things up. The presence of God will come. So I'm going to pray for people here in just a moment, but let me just kind of close this out with prayer. And I'm going to pray for people that God break things through. But many times that, and let me say this warning too before we close down the recordings or whatever, I'll get this on there. Whatever you do, River of Life, please hear me. There's always going to be people that go after God and then there's always going to be people that don't. Do not let anybody ever hinder you in your walk with God. Don't let them hinder your praise. Don't let them hinder you from listening to sermons. Don't let them hinder you from going down and receiving from God. Steve Hill, I love Brother Steve's ministry. He always said that the people, he'd say this because, you know, there'd be some religious person out there just sitting there bored, you know, looking at people praising God. And he'd always joke around and say, you know what the definition of radical, because they'd say the people up there praising God were radical. The definition of radical is somebody closer to Jesus than you. And he always rebuked them about that. But listen, he also said this. He said that if you really are desperate for God, and I'm doing my best to quote him here, but he said that your 
desire, your desperation to have God will be so strong that you'll be willing to look like a fool in the eyes of men to be embraced in the arms of God. In other words, you'll run down to the altar and get everything God has for you, even if others sit back there just staring like... It's our personal pursuit of God. Don't let anybody hinder that. I've seen people that you can set it there on a silver platter and some people just devour the things of God while somebody else just sits there just, you know, not getting anything out of it. And then 10 years down the road, the person that sat there all bored, they're off in sin and living, you know, a destroyed life and away from God. And the other people are still serving the Lord, living for him. Go after God now. Get everything you have for him. Lord, I thank you. Lord, that you're pouring out your spirit. There is an intensity. There always is. There's always been a move of the spirit here. And Lord, we just take direct authority over religion, a spirit of religious witchcraft, any control, any suppression, any heaviness, anything that's trying to hinder people's praise and worship. Father, we break that off people. We command it to be bound and leave people in Jesus' name. Leave every life. And many times it's connected even to physical health problems as it's a spirit of heaviness, which can be in translated infirmity. We command it to be bound and leave in Jesus' name. I thank you, Lord, for freedom in every life. I thank you for breakthroughs as your angels clear it out. And, Lord, let there be freedom. Let there be high praise again, singing, dancing, shouting, clapping, twirling, lifting hands, freedom, expression, the type of praise that takes people into the Holy of Holies. And, Lord, we thank you for breakthroughs. And as we go into this time of Yom Kippur, always think about the courts of heaven. So I'm going to put in the notes for those that are going to be listening to this or watching this. If you go to sermon.net, the notes are there. But on these notes, there's also a pattern of praying in the courtroom of heaven. And I wanted to make sure and put that in there for you guys because this is a powerful weapon that you learn how to go before God as a righteous judge to give you vindication and restoration. So I'm putting that in there. That's something my wife and I studied out. And and I wanted to bring that to you as well. So make sure and get those notes and and look into that. I think River of Life, for the most part, has that because I've given it to you. But, Lord, I thank you for sealing this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.